You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, it's great to see you. Luke 15 is where we're going to be, so you want to go ahead and grab your Bible. And we're going to read a lot of Scripture today, so it would be really helpful for you to have a Bible there in hand um, for you to look at. If you don't have a Bible, um, underneath maybe every three or four chairs, something like that, you'll find one. And so feel free to grab one of those. And if you don't have a good Bible, take that home with you. That can, that can be yours. So Luke chapter 15. And let me prepare you one more time for those who missed the, uh, the opening little shot at this. That at the end of the sermon, we're going to take a moment and stop to allow you to talk. When we finish a set of sermons like this, um, we like it to stop to be mutually encouraged by one another as we hear how God has used this specific chapter um, to press on us, to push on us, that sort of thing. I think I put the question up on the screen here for you. Um, so I, I'd encourage you to look at that question and be thinking um, over the next few minutes as we uh, chat and uh, when we get ready for that, we want, we want to hear from you. Don't be bashful. Like, we really want to be mutually encouraged. So I think, you know, for you speaking, th- don't hold back on that. If God has been working um, on you through the last five, six weeks, then, uh, then share with us. We'd love, we'd love to hear that. And we're not interested, like, in a theological debate with that. We're interested in this is what God's been doing in, in the midst of, of Luke 15. Okay, so here's where we're starting. I want to remind you of of why we chose to do this chapter of, of the Bible. Like why it is that we chose to spend six or so weeks in Luke 15. So let me give you four quick reasons. Number one, this chapter needs to be revived. Um, it, it's one of the most famous of, of Jesus' parables. Like when, when you mention the parable of the prodigal son, there's a lot of people who are familiar with that. And, and one of the interesting things, preaching through familiar passages are sometimes the most perilous to preach through. Because here's what our posture becomes once we have a, a passage that we feel like we've pretty much got nailed. Um, when we feel like we nail a, a passage of the scripture, our posture turns from, or t- turns yeah, from God press this deep into me. I, I'm going to pause over this, God. Will you, will you bring this great thing and will you press that deeper into my soul? And rather than that, our posture becomes, God, can we please move on to the next thing? Can, can we please get to the next thing? We, okay, so I, I, wow, there's a balloon. There is a balloon. So you just never know what you're going to get, you know? That's great. So familiar passages are, can be really dangerous for us because our posture shifts in the middle of them. And so I, I, one of the reasons that we wanted to preach through this is because we wanted to highlight the content of Luke 15 and make sure this content is pressed deep, deep, deep into our bones in this faith family. And one of the things I prayed for us as a church is that God would breathe life into these words in this chapter and through these words that he would breathe great life into you. So we hope that's happened. So this chapter needs to be revived for a lot of us. Secondly, this chapter gives a graphic view of the gospel. Okay, so this chapter is not primarily about a father and a son. It's not primarily about Pharisees and scribes or tax collectors and sinners. This passage is primarily about God. It's primarily a gospel display. It it is meant to to present some of the, the biggest and boldest and brightest themes of the gospel in the most vivid colors. It's a storied presentation of the gospel. Tucked into this story, you see themes of, of sin and grace, of rebellion and, and running, of repentance and reconciliation, of, of faith and forgiveness, of sonship, of slavery, of salvation. All of those things packed into this chapter. And so it's, it's a graphic display of the gospel. I love what Tim Keller says about it. He says this, on the surface of it, the narrative is not all that, all that gripping. 
I believe, however, that if the teaching of Jesus is likened to a lake, this famous parable of the prodigal son would be one of the clearest spots where we can see all the way to the bottom. And, and our hope for you is we've kind of stood over this spot, this, you know, this, this spot of the gospel pond here, is that God would give you eyes to see deeper um, into the gospel's unsearchable depths. We hope that's happened for you. That, that you have seen the gospel in more clear and a more compelling way um, as we've preached through this chapter. It's this graphic display of the gospel. Thirdly, um, third reason that we, we wanted to do Luke 15 was that this chapter, this chapter is misunderstood. Um, I hope your experience has been different than mine, but probably four out of five times that I hear this, this passage preached, it is preached under the heading of parenting. And I'm all for um, addressing parents. The Bible does that. So we get to address parents. It's good to address parents. But I'm just saying this. Luke 15 is not in the context of parenting. That's not what it's about. It is not about how to kind of reel in a rebellious son. The content of Luke 15 is about this. How God in his grace has reeled in you a prodigal. That's what it's about. It's, it's about God and the gospel. That, that's the, the content of Luke 15. The content is God is a pursuer of, of prodigals, that he is relentless in his grace, that he is determined to rescue sinners, that he rejoices at the salvation of sinners. This is the content, that the worst of sinners, God rejoices at their redemption. And, and this chapter, it, it gives that content, and then it contrasts this tender heart of God that rejoices at the repentance of sinners, and this tough heart of the Pharisees who are enraged at the repentance of sinners. It's this contrast between God's missional heart and their self-righteous and superior heart. And so we hope that as we kind of walk through Luke 15, that you have seen that this is not only a contrast between God's heart and the Pharisee's heart, but it's a contrast between God's missional heart and our self-righteous and superior heart. So, so we want to make sure that there's a clear understanding of what this chapter is about. And lastly, fourth reason, oh, and by the way, let me, let me give you um, this uh, from John MacArthur. This is how he describes the central message to make sure this isn't misunderstood, the central message of Luke 15. He says, the central message of this parable then is an urgent and sobering entreaty to the hard-hearted listeners whose attitudes exactly mirrored the elder brothers. The parable of the prodigal son is not a warm and fuzzy feel-good message, but it is a powerful wake-up call with a very earnest warning. So we hope that as we have preached through and we have studied through Luke 15, that that warning has been heeded and that warning has been heard. Okay, and then fourthly, here's the last reason that we wanted to preach through Luke 15. Number four, this chapter reveals the two ways of running from God. That there are two ways to run from God. So we, we wanted to do this chapter because we wanted to make sure that we as a faith family know that, that sin is bigger than just breaking the rules. That, that it's, lostness is bigger than a prodigal in a pigsty. That lostness and sin is also doing the right things, behaving well, but with the wrong motives. That that's also sin. That that's also a picture of what it means to be lost. So this chapter shows us that there's two ways of running from God. One way of running from God is embodied in our tax collectors and sinners. They are running from God in their immorality. This is the obvious way of running from God. For them, ultimate freedom equals breaking the rules. Running into the far country, living in the middle of, of parties and with prostitutes. That's their idea of freedom. To satisfy the deep, the deep aches of their soul, that, that's what in their mind it requires. Okay, now listen to this key idea over this chapter, though. Because our tax collectors and sinners, because they are rule breakers, 
and like varsity rule breakers. They're good at rule breaking because they are rule breakers from their first gasp for breath. It has been pounded into them that their rule breaking has disqualified them from grace, that they are beyond the reach of God's grace. They are beyond forgiveness, that God's grace reaches far, but it doesn't reach as far as they are. That has been pounded into them, that they are beyond the grace of God. Okay, now that's one way of running from God. And this is one way of their their view of God. But then you've got the self-righteous Pharisees. They embody this other way of running from God that you can actually run from God through your morality, through your good behavior, through your moral living. See, see, it's a less obvious way of running. For, For them, ultimate freedom is not found in breaking the law. It's found in keeping the law, doing the right thing. It's found in staying close to home, making sure you get to church, making sure the Bible's in your hand, the family's there. It's by keeping all the rules. Okay, now our Pharisees, they were good rule keepers. And because they were good rule keepers from the moment they were born, it was ingrained into them that because of your good behavior, you can be sure that God will bless you. Because of your morality, you can be sure that God will meet you with mercy. Because if you're right living, you can be sure that all the the grace and mercy of God will come toward you. See, this is their thinking about God. In their economy, grace is earned. See, if you were to ask them, is God gracious? They would say, of course God's gracious. What do you mean is God gracious? And and you'd say, okay, who's he gracious to? And their response would have been, for the people who keep the law, who who behave well. See, in their economy, the blessings of God turned on their good behavior. Okay, so when you look at these two ways of running, but both of them are lost. Both of them are forsaking God and running from God. Their running looks much different, but I want you to see this. That although their running looks much different, their view of God is the same. They are both relating to God based on their performance for God. That they both relate to God based on how well they behave. And because one group behaves badly, they think they're beyond grace. And because one group relates or uh, behaves really well, that they think they're above grace. They don't really need grace. They've earned grace, right? They don't, they don't need to be saved by Jesus. Their behavior has saved them. But both of them embrace a wrong view of God. They embrace a wrong view of grace and they embrace a wrong view of the gospel. Okay, now with that grid laid over kind of this chapter, these two ways of running from God, I want to run through the entire chapter with you. I'm going to read through the whole thing together with you this morning. And I want to try to point out to you how God, or how Jesus uses these three parables, this chapter, Luke 15, how he uses it like a wrecking ball to slam into their wrong beliefs about God, grace, and the gospel so, so how he deconstructs their, their wrong beliefs in this chapter and how in its place, he's trying to re, rebuild like a right way of looking at the world, a right way of looking at God, a right way of looking at the gospel, a right way of looking at grace, okay? So you've got this deconstruction, God ripping it down, Jesus ripping it down, and this reconstruction, God building back into them what they should be believing. Okay, so with that, with that said, this performance-based mentality over both crews, both embracing a wrong view of the gospel, start with me in Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Verse 1 starts like this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay, both groups are rebellious, both groups are lost, both groups are in desperate need for redemption, right? But this, the chapter is specifically written in response to the Pharisees grumbling. 
They're looking at Jesus and and they're really beside themselves. They they don't like the fact that Jesus is running with the rough crowd, that that he's running with the rebellious crowd. See, the Pharisees believed in salvation by isolation, salvation by separation. We we don't mess with those people who are unclean. We don't don't get around those people who who are not like us. We, We don't get around the sinners, right? and the sinful. We, we stay clear from them. So they're really offended that Jesus is actually eating with them, that he's receiving them, that in this crowd around Jesus, you've got tax collectors and sinners. They don't like that, okay? So in response to them not liking that, they're grumbling, come these three parables. Parable number one, verse three. So he told them this parable, number, verse four. What man of you having a, sh- a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after one, the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now think about how both of these two groups of people are reading that story or listening to that story. Think about our group one, our tax collectors and our sinners. They read that story and they know that Jesus is calling them the wayward sheep. They know that. This isn't like a hidden to them, they they get a real clear picture really quickly that they are the rebellious sheep who did not heed the voice of the the good shepherd. They are the sheep that has wandered away, walked off, gotten themselves into trouble that they cannot get out of. They know that's them, but they did not expect the story to end this way. They expected the story to go like this. So that you lost one sheep and what did the, the good shepherd do? He left the sheep to die on his own. That's what they expected the story to sound like. But instead, it sounds vastly different. Instead, they hear Jesus say that they are the lost sheep, that they are the one that has wandered off, the rebellious, the rule breakers, that they are those people that are beyond the grace of God. And here is the good shepherd, God. He comes after them in relentless grace. He pursues them. He wrestles them down in his grace, ties up their feet, throws them over his shoulder and returns with them rejoicing. See, this, this is the picture of God. They can't believe this. They're looking at Jesus saying, you're telling me that's how God relates to us? And Jesus is saying, yes, God is a pursuer. He, after even you, the wor- he, is, he he's initiates. He runs after. He's relentless in this thing. He is the good shepherd who tracks down that lost sheep. Even you, a prodigal. So so one group is rejoicing, but our group too, when they hear that same story, they're just as surprised, but they're not rejoicing, they're outraged. This is not the God we grew up with. This is not the God who who helps those who help themselves, right? This is not the God who blesses our good behavior. This is not the God who meets um, only morality with mercy. This is not that God. And I think it's interesting when, when you get to verse seven, I wanna make sure that this isn't confusing for you because it has been for me for a long time. When you read that there's one sheep that's lost, God rejoices over that one that is found more so than 99 righteous ones who needs no repentance. When he says 99 righteous need no repentance, that's his picture of the Pharisees. And he's not saying that they actually are righteous and they actually need no repentance. He is saying that there is no joy in heaven over people who don't realize that they're unrighteous, who don't realize that they need to repent. There's no joy in heaven over that. See, this is his picture of the Pharisees, that they have been blinded by their good behavior. They feel like they have behaved so well that they do not need Jesus. They have behaved so well that they don't need to repent. You you see what's happening there? 
They're outraged by the same story. Okay, now, now get a picture of this, the deconstruction and reconstruction that's happening. Jesus, like a wrecking ball with this parable, slams it into both groups, and he's saying, you both have wrong views of grace. You both have wrong views of the gospel. What, what you think about grace is not grace. You think you can earn this stuff. You think you can deserve, you can't deserve it. You're not beyond the reach of God's grace, and you're not above grace, he's saying to the other crowd. He's deconstructing and reconstructing. Okay, now look at the next parable, parable number two, verse eight. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there's joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And I love this story, right? You got a lady, 10 coins, she loses one. Now that one coin is just a modest amount. It would be one day's wage. So when you read one coin, you're not supposed to think, wow, you would like tear the house apart to get to the one. You're not, you're you're supposed to think like, this is how, well, group one, this is how they would respond to this story. They, They would hear that and think, okay, so she lost a coin. She's got nine others. So what, how's she going to respond to that? She's going to respond by leaving the coin in the couch. It's not worth tearing up the couch to get the coin out. You've got nine other coins, nine other days' wages that you can live on. See, they, they expected the story to go that way. They know they are the lost coin. They know they are the coin that is lost in the corner of the couch. They know that. And they fully expect the woman to say, you know what? The couch is worth more than they are. Not worth, not worth tearing the house up. And all of a sudden, Jesus comes along and says, that's not how the story goes. The, the lady, picture this guy here, rips the house apart to find you. Pulls out every drawer, cleans them out, takes the couch, throws it out on the front porch, kicks it, shakes it, gets the chainsaw out, rips it in two to get to the coin. See, th- this is the picture. They're looking at Jesus saying, you're telling me that's how God relates to us prodigals, tax collectors? You're saying that's how God pursues and runs after his relentless grace toward us. And Jesus is saying, yes, this is grace. You didn't earn that. You can't deserve that. But God literally tears his house apart to get to you. Literally tears his son asunder to find you. This is the gospel. This is grace. See, this other, other crowd though, the Pharisees and tax collectors, Pharisees and, and uh, scribes, they look at that same picture and, and they're not rejoicing at the end of it. They're mad at the end of it. They're enraged at the end of it. This is not the God of the scriptures they're saying. This is not the God that we have been taught from day one, how he relates to us. This is not grace. This is not the gospel. This is not any of that. Jesus is deconstructing uh, relationships built to him based on performance. He's deconstructing that and he's reconstructing what grace is, what the gospel is. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. It's God's reckless pursuit of self-righteous people and rebellious people. Pursuit of both of you. Third parable. This is going to be the longest of all of Jesus' parables, by the way. Longest one, probably the most thorough one. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them, he's representing our tax collectors and sinners. Those people who who felt like they were beyond the grace of God, the rule breakers. And the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. This is a storied presentation of sin. And I, I think it's important to notice that in this chapter, this guy didn't murder anyone right? He, he didn't commit adultery with someone. 
Here's the storied presentation of sin in this chapter. It's living as if there is no God in your life. On Monday, it's waking up and making all of your decisions as if God did not exist. It's being married and and living in your marriage as if God does not exist in your marriage. It's living your life as a practical atheist. That's what sin is pictured as. It's him running from the father, wishing the father was dead as he enjoys the father's stuff. And by the way, that's not just a picture of the worst of, of people. That's a picture of every person before God. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. It's amazing to me how the first few steps of running always feel like freedom, don't they? All, like, if you could have pictured this guy coming off the porch of his father's house, he would have just felt like the weight of the world is off of his shoulders. Running always feels like freedom at first. But listen to this. When you refuse sonship from God, you guarantee slavery to something else. That's how sin works. You gar- when you refuse sonship, you guarantee slavery. And, and so in this, in this picture here, you've got this guy that he has run into the far country thinking that for all the glitter, there's got to be gold there. And he gets there and he quickly finds out that, that sin's got this sweet coating, but underneath it's got a bitter core. He quickly finds that out. And, and then all of a sudden a famine hits and he is struck by the tender violence of the grace of God. This story, this part of the passage, it is proof that God will tear a man apart in order to bring that man back to himself. There's proof for that. This is what's happening. The grace of God, the tender violence of God is bringing this man to his senses. Look at verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Okay, now I want you to make sure you're getting this through the grid of these two groups though. This is not meant to give you a warm and fuzzy feeling primarily. It is meant to shatter all of our categories about how we relate to God. It is meant to take these two groups of people and like a wrecking ball, totally dismantle everything they believe about God, grace, and the gospel. That's what it's meant to do. So when, when, when group one, tax collectors and sinners hear this story, they are thinking the story cannot go that way. We know we are the prodigal in the far country, in the pigsty. We know that's us. And we know that the story cannot end by saying that we are returned home and welcomed into the family. We know that it can't be that. We know that the story has got to be, we walked back in, we returned home, and we were beaten and brutalized. We were hired as a servant where we tried for the rest of our days to work off our debt in hopes of one day becoming a son again. 
And Jesus is looking at him and saying, that is not the gospel. It is not grace. Grace is you returned and the father ran and embraced you. Rather than, than waiting and to give you wrath, he waits to give you the welcome. He brought you into the family. He gives you rings and robes and shoes. He reinstates you into the family, kills a calf and celebrates for you. That's the gospel, that you're not beyond grace. You're still within reach of the grace of God. Group two hears the same story. And I mean, the tension is built to this point. And at this point, you could have just seen the look of disgust saturate their face. This is blasphemy. This is not God. This is not grace. This is not the gospel. This is not the way the story of God goes. And into that crowd, you've got these last eight verses. Look at verse 25. And remember, he's deconstructing and reconstructing. He's deconstructing their misconceptions about God, grace, and the gospel and reconstructing right views of that. Verse 25. Now his older son. Okay, now his older son represents the self-righteous Pharisees. They are the rule keepers. They're relating to God based on their performance for God. And their behavior is so good that they actually start trusting it for their righteousness rather than Jesus for their righteousness. Okay, this is the self-righteous Pharisees. Now, as his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And the servant said to him, your brother has come back, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes. He's got this judgmental, critical spirit. You killed the fattened calf for him. Verse 31, and he, the father, said to him, son, you are always with me. All that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. These last eight verses, this would have been the part of the story that the Pharisees raised their hand up in the air and say, finally, somebody like responds in a legitimate way here. Somebody is rational in this story. Finally, this happens. Finally, somebody points out to the father his need for repentance. Finally, somebody points out to the father that he has been way too reckless with his grace, way too reckless with his forgiveness. Finally, somebody's gonna kind of be the voice of reason in this story. See, this is the self-righteous Pharisees right here. You see that? And okay, now here's where I wanna end this last little step I wanna take with you. I want you to see God's response to those people who are demanding that God repent for his grace. I want you to see how gracious God is to people who are so difficult to love. You don't like self-righteous people. I don't like self-righteous people. We don't want to hang out on Friday night with self-righteous people. We don't want that. But I want you to see how God responds with such a welcoming grace, even to these people. Okay, watch God's gracious response to these self-righteous Pharisees. Look at verse 28. He does five things to him. One, he goes out. Do you see that in verse 28? He goes out. He leaves the celebration and he goes out to meet his son. This is just proof that God not only initiates forgiveness and initiates reconciliation and is aggressive in his pursuit of just prodigals, but he's also aggressive in his pursuit of self-righteous Pharisees. Maybe you could think of it this way. This is proof that God will beat down the door of any club to bring out a prodigal. 
to rescue a prodigal and he will beat down the door of any church to rescue the self-righteous Pharisees. He'll do both of those. He doesn't just have forgiveness for one, he's got it for both of them. That that he is open to both of them. That he goes out to both of them. See, this is just proof that God has a heart not just for for the rebellious. And by the way, they can be a lot easier to love because they know they're rebellious. He's got a heart not only for these rebellious prodigals, but these rebel, inwardly rebellious, self-righteous Pharisees. He goes out, and look at verse 28, next phrase, and he entreats him. He goes out and entreats them. Verse 28 for me, as I've read this um, and kind of studied this over the last six or seven weeks, or actually a few months, this has become my favorite verse in the whole entire chapter, because I think it's the biggest display of grace in the entire chapter. That he goes out and entreats this person that's so difficult to like. I think it's the biggest display of compassion, the biggest display of kindness and gentleness and mercy and grace and humility is in verse 28. He goes out and entreats him. He pleads with him. He he woos him. He begs him. See, everyone in the culture, when they heard this story, would have been thinking, this father's about to go outside. He's about to beat this guy to death. That's what he's about to do. See, in that culture, fathers didn't ask sons to do things. They commanded them to do things. So they're all thinking, this guy's about to get a beating. But instead of a beating, the father entreats him. He begs him to come in. Isn't that that a, a crazy picture of grace? He goes out and entreats him. And I want you to look in verse 31 at the three things he says to him. He's outside now. He's entreating. And he says three things. One, he calls him son. You see that? He says, son. Now there's two words that could be used for son. One is a formal Greek word that would have less emotion attached to it. So so it's more formal. The other is a less formal word that has emotion dripping from it. And he uses the the emotional word, technon. It's the, the informal word for son that you get a sense when he uses this word that he is on like a bended knee, right? He, he is torn asunder. Like his heart is broken. It's agonizing. It's, he's in deep pain and anguish at the rebellion of his son. It's this less formal word that, that communicates the emotion behind it. It would be the difference um, in, in maybe this scenario. If Laura were standing on my front porch and I were trying to get her to come into the house, the, the more formal word might sound like this, woman, get inside the house. <laughs> By the way, that probably wouldn't work real well, right? We all agree? <laughs> Probably not a good scenario if you're kind of room. But, but the less formal word might sound like this. It might be me on bended knee saying, Laura, sweetheart, babe, sweetie, honey, whatever you're, see, it's about to get inappropriate here, right? See, it's, it's whatever that word is that, that just seeps with emotion as you plead with them to come in. He says, son, it's this tender heart of God toward the self-righteous man. And then look at what he says to him. He says, you are always with me. Do you see that? You've been around. You've been in the field, around the house. You've slept. I mean, you've been around me for all these years, but the problem is you're not connected to me. You've been close, but you're just not connected. It reminds me of Mark um, chapter 12, where a scribe comes up to Jesus and he says, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What's the deal? And Jesus says, love God and love people. That's the greatest commandment. The scribe responds back. You've spoken well. I agree. That's what the scriptures say. This guy knew his Bible. That's what the scriptures say. It is more valuable to love God and love people than offer burnt offerings and sacrifices. You know what Jesus says back to him, the scribe, this Pharisee? He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far. 
You're close. You're not far. You're just not in. You're close to the kingdom of God. You're just not inside of it yet. And this is the Pharisee here. He's been around it. He's been close to it, but he's never humbly repented and come into it. One of the things that keeps me um, up at night when I think about um, the call of God that he has placed over my life to preach to people in the Bible Belt is that there are so many people who flood churches that are close to the kingdom of God, but just not in it. For all their good behavior, all their good church attendance, all their good stuff that they do, they're just not in it. They've never humbly repented of even their best deeds and come into the kingdom. That they're trusting in their own behavior rather than in Jesus' perfect behavior for them. He says, you're close, you're just, you're just not quite there. And look at the last thing he says. He says, all that is mine is yours. I think it's this invitation for, for, the, or for the Pharisee, the self-righteous guy. I think it's the father saying, listen, do you see the calf that we just slaughtered? That, that can be your celebration too. Do you see all that I have? That, that can be yours too. But you're choosing to stand outside of the house. I mean, you've seen all of my riches, but you're not living in them. I mean, you, you've seen all of this stuff, but you're choosing to stay on the outside of all of this. It's this invitation for the father. To, he's looking at this self-righteous son and saying, will you come in so you can experience, so you can live in, so you can eat of all of my riches? Will you do that? It's this invitation to him. I mean, isn't this a beautiful picture of grace? He goes out to him. He entreats him. Son, come in. You've been close, but you're just not in it. All that I have here, all of the stuff that you see, it could be yours. Humbly repent. Come in and celebrate. It's a, it's a great picture of grace, huh? It is a beautiful picture of God's response to self-righteous men and women. Okay, want to push pause here? And uh, we're going to take a break and... We're going to give you a chance. To, uh, over the last five weeks, we've been working through Luke 15, and uh, we want to be mutually encouraged. We love to take a, a break at the end of sermons like this, or sets of sermons, to allow people to express how God has been pressing and pushing on them in, in the midst of five or six weeks worth of, of work up here. And so, um, and listen, again, we're not looking for a theological debate. We're looking for Man, this is how God has used this chapter. It doesn't have to be through our preaching or even Sunday mornings. It may be through your reading how God has used this chapter to start pressing on me. So um, we've got two mics, so we can kind of go back. It'd be better for us if we could go back and forth between this side and that side. Andy will take care of the mic on this, and Kevin will take care of the mic on this side. That way we can, can get around a little bit quicker. So don't be bashful. This is a chance to mu- us to mutually encourage one another. How's God been at work in you? Rodney, like any subject, it, it shines a light on, on, a pers- on a personal level. So self-righteousness is the one that really hit me um, the hardest. So the introspection has been great, and it's taken me, you know, on the first day of work, it, it, it's been a reminder yeah. to me. And I think politics is probably one of my strongholds, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you said a few things um, in your sermons that have really related to me. Yeah. So I think the important thing is, is that Monday it's remembered, at least, you know, for me personally. Mm-hmm. And here's the other thing I think needs to be said. It's really important to me. Is that the speed limit on a residential street is slow, right? And on a highway, it's very fast. Your sermons and your teachings are residential streets. So there's a lot to consider on a residential street. And so the important thing, I mean, someone that's my age has heard a lot of sermons. 
and they've all been, many of them have been highways. Your preaching and your teaching is a residential street where it slows down and it seeps inside of me and it sits within my soul and I don't forget it. So thank you for that. Yeah, you got it. It's a good analogy. like that. God has been teaching me that I have both sons in me. Mm-hmm. I tend to be very legalistic on the outward, but secretly I've been the runner. Yeah. And your first sermon on the series, uh, you mentioned the prodigal God. Yeah. And I got that book, and it has just hit home mm. with me. Good. And, yeah. and in my prayers, I'm going, God, I've got the knowledge here. Change my heart. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Marcus. In the first service, we had a guy say something similar, that he was saved at 34 so he feels like he spent the first 34 years being the, the younger son, and now he's bounced for the next, you know, he's mid-40s now. For the last 10 to 12 years, he's become the elder brother. So he's bounced between them. So yeah, I think that's great insight, Marcus. For sure. Thanks for sharing that. And feel free to grab their attention while somebody else is talking that way. Um, one of the things that God was showing me was sin. <clears throat> I'm sorry, because I have a cold. Um, is also doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Mm. And just to do things out of your love for God. <clears throat> and not just, you know, it's the good thing, it's the moral thing. But just that is the greatest commandment. Love the yeah. Lord your God with all your heart and all mm. your soul. And that should be our first motivation. Yeah. And um, one of the other stories in Luke, Luke that spoke to me was when... I believe it was Mary broke um, the alabaster flask yeah. on Jesus. And Simon, in his heart, was saying, well, if he knew who she was, you know, he um, wouldn't be so happy about this. And they, yeah. then Jesus talked about how there was a creditor, and um, one owed a lot and one owed a little. And that verse has always struck me where, you know, Jesus says, she loves me because she's forgiven a lot. Yeah. And those who don't love me, it's because they're forgiven a little. But I think we've all been forgiven a lot. It's just we don't remember that. That's right. And so just asking the Lord to remind us of his grace and yeah. what the cross means to us and what he's forgiven us. That's right. Yeah, you know, the, 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 the first half of that parable with the younger son is a shocking story of forgiveness. And ultimately, that is how God has forgiven every son or daughter who is in the house. If you're a Christian, that's your story. Yeah. Thanks, Jenny. I think we're back here, then we'll, we'll come up here, yeah. Miss Debbie, yeah. Um, Rodney, one of the things that, that, we, that you brought out a few weeks ago was when God was on that porch and he saw the son um, returning. The picture that I got in my mind of God running to me, I just can't, I mm. can't forget it. Yeah. And I never knew years ago when I was receiving that forgiveness, the picture of God running for me. Mm-hmm. And that has just, just been such a picture to me and, and taking God out of my little box that I seem to, to keep him in so much. Well, so I left that tax collector group, but all I do is go to the next group. Mm-hmm. And, um, but if I keep the picture in my mind running God running to give that forgiveness, that's where I'm supposed to be running, giving forgiveness. Yeah. And in my insecurities of who I am in Christ, 
I tend to go to the self-righteous person. But when I really believe what God did for me and who I am in Christ, I can forgive. I can I can give this to others. And so that's my fine line I'm walking, being confident in Christ, staying in the middle. I know what I left, but I don't want to live in Mm -hmm. the self-righteousness. And so this has been a great study to me. Yeah, it blew everything I've ever been taught. But, man, I I want to get out of the self-righteous. And for the world, they've got to see the joy and the the hope in us, or it's never going to change. Yeah, for sure. Younger brothers definitely don't want to be about around church-going older brothers, no doubt, for sure. Thanks, Debbie. I appreciate you sharing that. This thing on? You got it. You're in. Well, I'm, uh, I'm not a member here, so I feel kind of awkward That's speaking right. out and everything, but this is my, right. uh, my third time here, and uh, one of the things that jumped out at me that you spoke about is uh, not beating the person up in your heart like he wasn't beating up his son in his heart mm. the time that he was gone so that when he did return that he was be able to to, to reach out and embrace yeah. him like that For and then sure. um also i wanted to commend you on uh your focus on the scriptures is is very commendable and then the music guy um <laughs> the music guy his choice in what y'all sing about is very exalting to god and that's yeah. awesome so yeah I agree, totally. Being the third. For sure. We're blessed to have Kevin doing that for us. Okay, a few more. Yes, right over here, Josh. I don't know who's got a mic closest to that. Were you about to? Yeah, she's got it. Okay, you're going to go next? Yeah. That's right. You're totally totally winning the competition right now. So, yeah, Andy, we'll go Josh Elson next right back here. Okay. Yeah. I don't know why this happened, but when I was younger, I got it in my head that the younger brother testimony was more powerful mm-hmm. and meant more and could be a better testimony. And I just got that in my head, you know? And so I just wondered how I would ever have a testimony, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> and I, it wasn't until I was like 25 or 26 that I could, like, genuinely get in touch with my sin. And, yeah. I mean, it was just beginning. And I had grown up in a Christian home. So here I am, you know, 45, and I am just now, in the last five years, experiencing what Mary felt at Jesus' feet. Yeah. And um, I just thought that was for the woman that had been really bad outwardly mm-hmm. and was very, you know, adulterous physically or whatever. I just never connected it with someone that all their sin is just right here. Yeah, for sure. And in their heart. Mm-hmm. So now I can experience what she experienced. And it's just as powerful. Yeah, for as sure. As a testimony. No and doubt. And like you were saying, in the Bible Belt, it's like that self-righteousness is ingrained so deeply uh, that it, and it's so cunning and so deceiving. And um, I am so thankful that you are addressing this kind of thing, um, that so many are so close and all around the kingdom, but they're 
not in it, and, and, and we don't even know it. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, to know that, I mean, if you've, if you've got the, the elder brother testimony, that's probably a more miraculous story of grace than the, than the younger brother. That, that's pretty amazing to know that. It gives you a totally different idea. Yeah. Josh. I was a younger brother, and I, 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 I'm resonating with some of the testimonies that I'm hearing where people have swung from being the younger brother to the elder. And I think part of that happens because we have forgotten who we are, our sonship. Mm-hmm. If, if you notice um, the younger brother's uh, practice speech before he goes before his father, you'll notice when he delivers that, something is missing. Um, the father cuts him off before he says um, that I will be a servant. And I, I think that we tend to want to become a servant in the father's house when we're sons. And so our, our, our doing, uh, our, our, our doing comes out of our being. Um, it's our identity as sons, and so our obedience comes out of a thankfulness and a gratitude towards our father who has received us back into his house. Mm-hmm. And so that's really been... Um, something that has uh, spoken to me over the last few weeks. Yeah. And because we are now accepted as sons, we can be the elder brother that um, the self-righteous has not been because Jesus is the, the greater elder brother who went into the far country to rescue the younger brother who was rebellious. Yeah. And, and I want to be that greater elder brother as my uh, elder brother, Jesus. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, Josh. Yes. Yeah. Our first Sunday here um, was the Sunday that you spoke on repentance. Uh And you challenged us to stop and think about how personal our sin is to God. Mm. And I think as Christians, it's so easy to, as you referenced, roll through the stop signs. And we know we sin, and we say we're sorry, and we move on. And um, I don't even know how long it had been since I really just sat and thought about this creator who created me and loved me so much. He knows how many hairs are on my head. He, he is so huge, but yet he chooses to be so small to know me. The, um, that he sent his son, and yet my sin hurts him so deeply. And to sit and be overwhelmed with that and to truly, truly find that depth of repentance. Yeah. And, um, and then you preached on... Um, how as Christians we tend to gauge our, la- our growth in Christ by our lack of sin instead of our repentance and our death of repentance. And I think that has changed me and my view so much because even in church, growing up in church, we're taught to, well, have you read your Bible? Have you been praying? Have you been witnessing? Have you been doing this? Have you been doing that? And we look at all of that, and that is how we gauge our growth in Christ. And we forget to take those moments to sit and be still before him and know who he is and to truly realize how badly we hurt him and to pursue him in that depth and in that pain and in that love that that brings. And so I think that um, just going through this, there's just been so many insights. And I have grown up hearing this story, and, and we do always hear about the younger son and think that's what the story's about. And we just forget how much is in that and how God calls us to him daily and, and has given us his spirit to live in us and that there isn't anything good in me. Yeah. The only good that ever comes from me is when the Holy Spirit is in me mm-hmm. and is acting through me. Yeah. Thanks for sharing very much. Okay. Any more? We'll do maybe one or two others. If got some that... All right. 
I don't know how. Um, actually, this is my first time here. I, um, I kind of invited myself. <laughs> I, um, I go to a church in Fort Worth. It's, it's you know, um, I was visiting Lindsay at her work, and um, uh, I was sharing the gospel with her, because it really, really does bring me joy. <laughs> and she asked me, well, what church do you go to? And I told her, and I said, well, what church do you go to? And I, I told her, well, my church that I go to, it's not really like a traditional modern-day Christianity, and she's like, oh, mine isn't either, and I, I was like, well, hey, do you mind if I come? <laughs> so I'm here, and um, I listened to one of your sermons last night from last Sunday, and I really enjoyed that, and um, I just get really excited when I see other people somewhere not directly connected to me, but connected by Christ, you know, um, loving him the same way, and, uh, you know, I've, I read this chapter before and studied it before, and I really don't think that you can ever study enough of anything in the scriptures. But um, one thing for me that I've always really appreciated it was I've always looked at the elder son and gone, it, it, things are probably more difficult for him. Because when you are the younger son and you're so low and you're so shattered and you're so this, you know, hey, you know, I'm a mess. But the older one is going, I'm, I'm great, I'm fine. But really, that to me, that's always been the, mo- the more dangerous side. Mm-hmm. Because when you start going, I'm fine, like you said, you start going, well, I really don't need God that much, or I always have God with me, so I'm, I'm good, and I'm cool, and, yeah. you know, and I think that's pretty dangerous when, when people start thinking that. Um, but at the same time, time, I do experience a lot of people in my life that I do um, try to serve and try to love like I'm supposed to, um, the younger son, the yeah. running from God, you know, and I think it's, it's really easy to actually tap into either one of those. Yeah. And um, God's love and His grace and, and being able to be completely shattered in front of Him day after day after day and dying to yourself is probably one of the most glorious honors to me, at least, you know, when I yeah, try to um, sure. step out of myself as much as possible. And, and, you know, scriptures like this definitely help with that. For sure. So. Thanks for sharing. One more. Any takers? No takers. Okay, so we won't do one more. That's fine. Let's see how you want to play. Um, okay, so uh, back to Luke 15. We're going to uh, finish with this. Verse 32 ends with the, uh, the father saying, essentially, it was right for us to celebrate. This is a fitting thing. It's a good thing that we're celebrating. And then verse 32 ends, and it's like Jesus takes you to the edge of a cliff, and he's like, got you hanging over, but he doesn't finish the story for you. And this is Jesus, a, a, a master and, a, and just a great storyteller, intentionally taking you to the edge and to the end of the story, and then him flipping the script over to you, giving you the pen and saying, you're going to write the next scene. Pharisees, you, you, get to write the, you get to write how this story ends for us today. And, and so um, when you think about Pharisees and, and their end to the story, this is essentially Jesus giving them an invitation that things can be different. You don't have to be on the outside looking in. You you don't have to be um, on the porch while we celebrate. There is an invitation for the Pharisee to abandon all of their righteousness, even their best deeds, to humbly repent and come in and rejoice with the rest of the family. There's this invitation that's written into this. He's saying, "You, you write your response. And wouldn't we have loved that the Pharisees would have had that sort of a response, a an acknowledgement of their self-righteousness and the, the wretchedness of their heart, humbly repenting before God and coming into the feast. But we know that that's not how the Pharisees wrote the, the end of their script. The, the next scene for the Pharisees, if you keep reading the Gospel of Luke, turns into um, them falsely accusing Jesus, um, mocking and beating him, and then crucifying him on a cross. 
And then um, after he dies, they essentially throw a party for themselves where they congratulate themselves on their righteous act of preserving the honor of Israel and the honor of their God. And my hope for the Stonegate family is that as God flips the script and gives you the pen, that our response would be much different than that. That our response would be for the prodigals in the room, that you would see the warm welcome of Luke 15. That this is God saying that you are not beyond grace. That you don't earn grace. You don't deserve grace. You've done everything you can to disqualify yourself from grace. And God still reaches into you and gives it to you. This is is God. This is the gospel. So so that our prodigals in the room would, would hear the warm welcome of Luke 15. And maybe today that this would be a moment of repentance for them. Where they would get out of the pigsty, return to the Father, and we'd see a great day of reconciliation happen. And then for our self-righteous Pharisees, my hope is that our our response is different than than what we see play out in the Gospel of Luke. That that there would be a humble admission that all of our righteous deeds, even our best ones, are filthy rags before God. That there would be an abandonment of all of our works that, that we're trying to kind of gain God's approval with. There'd be an abandonment of all of that. Like the one prerequisite for salvation is that you know you need it that you know you need grace, that there is a desperation and a dependence on you for Jesus. That's the one prerequisite. So so maybe today, for for the self-righteous Pharisees in the room, you don't need to hear the warm welcome first. You need to hear the warning first. The, The warning that only those who abandon their righteousness get Jesus. Only those who forsake all of even their best deeds, only those guys get into the feast. Only those people get the rescue. Only those people get the redemption. And and maybe today for our rule-breaking prodigals and for our rule-keeping Pharisees, maybe today would be a a day that that we both, right, taste grace. Amen? Let's pray. For our prodigals in the room, Luke 15 sounds the alarm that there is a warm welcome. When you repent, you can be confident that you won't be... um, a recipient of the wrath of God, but the, the welcome of God. And I pray that today would be a day that, that you repent. This would be a day that, that you turn, um, come to your senses, turn from the pigsty, and, and return home. And for our self-righteous um, Pharisees in the room, I, I worked with a guy for about, uh, well, the first three or four years of ministry life for me, that he had been um, working in a student ministry for probably five, four or five years when he realizes that I'm doing all of these good things for God, I'm, I'm a student pastor for crying out loud, but I am the elder brother who has been close to the kingdom, not in the kingdom. And four years into ministry, humbly repents and um, forsakes, abandons all of his righteousness before God and runs to the righteousness that only Christ can offer. And I pray that that sort of an awareness would happen for some of us. And for the, for the Christians in the room that are elder brother-ish, they have been saved by grace, but are now relating to God based on their performance for God. I pray that, that Luke 15 would be a moment where Jesus, like he um, did for the, for the prodigals and for the Pharisees, begins to, to tear down and rip down your view of God, grace, and the gospel. And in its place, build a right view of God, sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, He lived a perfect life in place of your imperfect life. He died an undeserving death in place of your deserved death. 
He was buried. He rose again. And all those who have faith in God, trust God with their lives, hold it up and surrender their life to him and treasure him above all things will be reconciled, restored, redeemed by God forever. Pray that we, that that would be the deepest awareness of our life, that because of the work of Jesus, God has stamped on our lives approved, justified, redeemed, reconciled, made right. And so God, will you do that? God, I pray that, that for our faith family, that grace would be pounded and pushed down deep into us by your Holy Spirit. God, help us see the gospel. Help us work out the implications of the gospel. Um, God, I pray that, that we would begin living um, in the gospel as we parent. That we would begin living in the gospel as we um, walk in friendships and relationships with one another. I pray that the gospel would begin to drip through and drench our marriages. And so God, by your spirit, will you do that? Will you press the message of Luke 15 deep into to the fabric of this faith family? God, I pray for the salvation of prodigals over the next year of this church, for the salvation of the self-righteous over the next year of this church. God, I pray that we would be able to sit back and watch your spirit work in shocking and surprising ways. It is in your good and gracious name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.